Now, we've been in this general subject of living a life that conforms to the calling with which we've been called, uh, namely that in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, we've been told that we have been uh, selected and chosen from all the peoples of the world to be in this body of Christ together, that we have a unity with each other when we have unity in Jesus. And this is despite uh, not only being different people and having differences of culture and uh, priority, but uh, that we're different from God. That in fact, that we are sinners who are opposed to God, yet God in His grace and His mercy has brought all of us together um, by the blood of His Son, Jesus. Now then, how ought we to live if these gospel truths are indeed true? And so the second half of the book of Ephesians is essentially a very practical applications of the outworkings and the outflow of that unity that we have with each other and that unity that we have with God. And we talked last time we were together about what God provided for the church for the sake of unity in order to build this unity. And we talked about how God gifted leaders that were empowered by the Holy Spirit in verse um, 10 of Ephesians chapter 4. Now we're going to move on, and there's basically a series of questions. I'll give you the questions now, just so you can kind of follow the flow of thought, uh, but we'll just plug on to two more questions here. What did God provide for the sake of unity? God gave gifted leaders empowered by the Holy Spirit. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Why did God give leaders to the church? And we see that in verse 11. Uh, or verse 12, um, to equip the church to build the church. So God gave these leaders and gifted individuals in the church to equip the church to build the church. What's God's goal for the church? Well, God's goal is for all of us to reach Christ-like maturity. What is God trying to prevent as a threat to unity in the church? He's trying to prevent us being distracted and diverted. He talks about being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And then what, God, what is God trying to promote instead? Growing together in love. And so we have an outline, but the core of the instruction here in these verses from 1 to 16 is really the two questions that we're going to answer today why did God give these gifted leaders to the church to equip the church to build the church? And what is God's goal for the church for all of us to reach Christ-like maturity? Now, one of the phenomenons in America since about uh, the period after World War II has been two isms that run contrary to these goals that we see here in Ephesians 4. And one of them was the rise of consumerism. Uh, you have to understand during World War I and then World War II, you had a lot of industry being built up. You had to build all of these machines and fabricate all of these weapons of war. But after World War II, you still had all of these factors. What did they do? Well, they started to build washing machines instead and cars and homes. And you had the rise of what's called consumerism. That is, with all of the prosperity um, and all of the enthusiasm of being over one war, sort of, um, because there's the Korean War after that. Um, but there was a general sentiment amongst Americans in the Western world in general that you could buy things. 
to enhance the quality of your life. You could buy goods, you could buy services, and they all claim to make your life better, and this felt like a worthwhile pursuit. The next bigger car, the next bigger house, the next better this and that, vacuum cleaner, buying, and then that turned into buying things not just for convenience, but for luxury and lifestyle, not out of necessity. Now with this came, because everything was being mass-produced, the idea that you don't even have to make or do these things yourself. You can buy it or have someone else do it. It was all wrapped up in consumerism. You also had simultaneously the rise of individualism. Now, there is a general sense that in America we say that we, we value pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, and uh, we see maybe even back to the American Revolution that we have uh, this uh, independent spirit to us. And that, that's generally true, but the individualism, the individualistic spirit, uh, really is something that was a product, again, of this time period after World War II, because even with the American Revolution, there was still a deep sense of, of a belonging to a community and caring about communities. We're a democratic republic, so we expected to create states and so on. So it's not like every man for himself, you know, don't infringe on anybody else's rights, but instead you had really in the 60s and 70s this uh, sense that no one can tell me what to do that communities and groups are often dangerous and oppress oppressive, whether that's the, the, the government or certain races and ethnicities. And it's somewhat ironic that at the time we live now, um, you could say that uh, both the right and the left, conservative, liberal, you know, however you want to cut that uh, political divide, um, there is a sense of individualism that's very strong on both sides. I want to do what I want to do. Don't tell me what to, what to do. I need to grow in my own way. And you can see that on both sides of the political spectrum. They get expressed in different ways. But at the core of it is this idea that um, no one can tell me what to do. It's funny that we could agree on that. But both consumerism and individualism run completely contrary to the goals and mission of the church. That we will see in, in this text that everybody has an expectation not to just consume church. And what you saw in churches after, um, uh, in, the, in the 80s, 90s, and aughts, as that consumerism trickled down, is the rise of so called mega churches and seeker sensitive churches. Why did those get popular? Because the spirit of the age was I can buy goods and services to make myself happy. So what did churches try to do? Deliver the best product and appeal to the consumeristic spirit in order to draw you in. Simultaneously also, you had um, the, the rise of this individualism even within churches so that people no longer felt very close denominational ties because after all, it was all the big mainline Protestant denominations, the, the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Episcopals, that all forsook biblical inerrancy, biblical truth, holding to the scriptures as infallible doctrine. It was all these mainline groups. So you know what? You can't trust 
denominations. You can't trust churches. So you just, you must seek out biblical truth. You just grow as a Christian on your own. And if you find a church that does it better for you, again, the consumeristic spirit, you go there. But then if they start not helping you grow, then you go to another church. Because at the end of the day, it's about my spiritual growth. Because everyone else out there, they're going to, you know, those churches are going to go liberal or whatever. These are all antithetical to the spirit of Jesus, as we see and have seen in the book of Ephesians. He says, starting in verse 11, Paul, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why did God give leaders, these gifted believers, to the church? He gave them to equip the church to build the church. Now, there are these foundational gifts, as we talked about last time, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd teachers, but they are not better or more necessary than all of the other gifts and believers within a church. We tend to emphasize those ones. We tend to build churches around those personalities, but they simply start things in a church. We talked about that last time. They are simply part of a greater purpose for the church to do the work of building the church. The word equip Uh, which is actually a different word than the word that is translated equipped in verse 16. Um, Although they have similar ideas, you almost wish that if they're different words in Greek, you'd use different words in English anyway. Uh, There is a shade of meaning of, of preparation or adequate training in this use of the word equip. The word saints, which you've said before, in the New Testament, it just means Christians. It doesn't mean especially holy Christians. It just means your average, normal, Jesus-following, Bible-believing Christian. If you are here and you profess faith in Jesus, you are a saint as far as the Apostle Paul is concerned. simply means someone set apart by God. Every believer in Jesus is a saint, so it's not some special class of people. The spiritually gifted leaders of the church, then, they don't simply take charge and take control of the ship to steer it where it needs to go, and everyone else is just along for the ride. Swimming in the pool, enjoying the beverages, taking in the clubs and shows until we get where we're going. That's, you know, that's just the job of the captain and the engineers. No, the expectation of Paul is that every Christian in a church contributes and participates in the work of the ministry. And while the leaders plant and establish churches, which is what we see in the book of Acts, someone's got to start the church. Ultimately, a church is only truly functional when all who are in it are participating in the work. And there is an emphasis here on the word work. And all it means is that it takes intentionality, effort, and sometimes even suffering for the ministry to continue. Or as the phrase goes, a little blood, sweat, and tears. That's what we mean by work. The word ministry is where we actually get the English word deacon from, but it's not referring to just 
deacon staff. It was a general term back in uh, the time that the Bible was written to mean something as simple as clearing tables, as being a waiter at a restaurant. That was deacon work. That was ministry. What does it mean when Paul took that word that was sort of mundane and elevated it to the spiritual, applied it to churches? It means the spiritual opportunities to love each other and serve each other. And that's what he further clarifies when he says, for building up the body of Christ, that these works of ministry are those things that build us together. And we talked back in Ephesians 2 about being built as being a, a literal construction term. But Paul, who likes to mix word pictures, he says the church is a structure that must be built up like a skyscraper, brick by brick, floor by floor, rises high to the sky, and yet it is also a living body. So that growth is organic. It's alive. It's natural. So he's mixing an analogy of a, like a skyscraper being built up and that kind of work where if you ever right, sometimes watch time lapses on YouTube of, of things being built, you know, I saw one of a cruise ship being built and just amazing, like how you can be, build these gigantic boats, but they just do it piece by piece, little by little, same with skyscrapers. So he's, you got that picture in your head, but then you also have that picture, that time lapse of like cells multiplying and dividing and then becoming a head, and then a body, and legs, and fingernails. That, that kind of time lapse, too. One is very, of course, um, you know, just brick and stone and mortar. One is something alive and organic. And, and Paul, mixing these word pictures, he makes it even a little bit more confusing by saying that we as Christians, then, are not only the builders, like those, you know, tiny men putting one, you know, piece of rebar up and one window up at a time, but we're the building also. We're the builder and the building. So we're a skyscraper and we're a, a body. We're the builder and we're the building. So Paul just doesn't care about mixing all these analogies together. It's, uh, I know Aaron's expressed some frustration with that as he's doing his dissertation work. We're a building that's being told to build itself, but it works if we are parts of a body that grow together with the help of the other parts. You might think my, my, my foot doesn't have a whole lot to do uh, with my heart, and yet my foot doesn't function without my heart supplying you know, oxygen and, and blood and nutrients to the cells in my foot, but I don't get the burger to supply the energy and nutrients without my feet you know, taking me there. So we all have to work together for the body to build up so it's organic. To put it really simply, though, if all those mixed analogies and metaphors are confusing, Paul is just saying that Christians are expected to put in work and effort to be a part of each other's lives. From making coffee to praying for each other, helping someone set up email to giving a ride to sharing burdens and tears and joys, any and everything we do... Building each other up. As pastors, we often hear a lot of reasons that people don't participate in the work of ministry. I've said some of these things myself, but some think because maybe they've been too influenced by this consumer culture. 
that it's the job of the professional to do the work of the ministry. But actually it is pastor's and Dean's job to do the spiritual stuff in the church. Some think they're too rough around the edges, still working through some sins and don't feel comfortable serving because I think we're, I'm where I should be spiritually to serve. I've heard people say that they don't feel worthy to contribute anything. And they just have a low estimation of what they have to offer. And sometimes that's because they've been told they're worthless their whole life by their parents or something. It's very, very unfortunate. Of course, some say that they're too old to participate. Some say they're too young. Others say they don't have time, they're too busy. Some just don't see the point. Maybe it's laziness or maybe it's just, look, everything's going terrible down the toilet, so what's the point of making your bed, so to speak, if it's just going to get dirty and everything's going to be destroyed in fire anyway? Sadly, I know that many who are eager to work or were have been burned out or hurt by previous experiences, and it's turned you off from serving. We have heard many, many reasons why people feel averse to doing the work of the ministry. And I have just two things to say based on the passage. The first is, Paul just does not have a category of believers who don't have to do the work of the ministry, who are receivers only and not givers. So whatever you think about your ability, gifting, calling, time, if you're a Christian, you must find a way to participate in the work of the ministry and the building up of the body of Christ. There's no other category or types of people in the church. If you're in the church, you're a builder to build it. Secondly, though, what I'd like to say is that if you have any questions or complaints or hurts or confessions that are keeping you from serving, that's exactly what the pastors are here for. Can we do something, anything, to bring you to a place where you feel prepared and equipped to serve? That's why we're here. That's what God has gifted this church with. It's pastors and other mature, godly believers here to help address those reasons you have for thinking that you, you can't serve or, or that you don't have a place to serve. So I, I'm not just trying to browbeat or guilt trip anyone. Look, Paul doesn't have a category for anyone not serving. You better be serving. Well, I know you have your reasons. Again, I've heard them. Give us a chance to speak to that and to encourage you and to show you um, how you can be a part of the ministry here. Uh, and I'll just plug. Next week, we've got a volunteer fair coming up. And part of that is laying out some of the very obvious areas of serving at ICC. But there's others, too. You might have some ideas of your own. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're in this passage to a certain degree, is to, to encourage that kind of mindset. Now, what, what is the point of it? Again, secondly, what is God's goal for the church? Having gifted us with leaders who can equip the saints for the work of the ministry, the goal is for all of us to reach Christ-like maturity. In a sense, just being a group that helps each other 
and serves each other would, would not distinguish us really from other organizations and groups and religions in Irvine. There are probably dozens, if not hundreds of organizations that meet in Irvine that can probably supply. If all you're looking for is some kinship and friendship, some kind of I'm helping society and people in some small way, I'm working at a food kitchen, there's a ton of those if that's all you're looking for. I frequently get calls from high schoolers, actually, who are, who need, and prisoners, um, who need, <laughs> hopefully not, not both, <laughs> but, you know, prisoners and high schoolers who call the church and say, is there ways I can volunteer and help? Because what is church to them? It's just another, like, organization that helps people and um, gives people a chance to, to better themselves or to contribute to society. We're just one of those groups, and they're not just calling churches, they're calling all kinds of different organizations and clubs, right? We're just on a list of that. And, and if that's all we did, then, and, and the goal was just to help people, so to speak, then we would just be one of many groups that do that. And as noble and as helpful as those groups are, some of them, I'm sure, um, and I'm not suggesting you shouldn't be a part of those groups, by the way. What does distinguish the church's ministry is that our goal is godly. We are trying to become like Christ. And that is something that is not the explicit state of, stated goal of most nonprofits in Irvine. This is a goal of the church. And it's not a goal that just, you know, Pastor Chris and being a nice got together and said, okay, what, what should be our mission? What should be our vision statement? We crafted one. No, this is a holy commission from God himself. When Jesus said, go and make disciples, baptizing, uh, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he gave all churches and all believers the same goal. I want you to notice that Paul says that this goal, first of all, is for all, until we all attain to the unity of the saints, all the saints, all the Christians. You keep doing the work of the ministry and building up the body of Christ until all reach the goal. There's no speeding ahead to cross the finish line first, and everyone else is just dead weight. There's no go on without me. <laughs> I'm only holding you back. That's me on a hiking trip. Listen, just don't wait for me. You just go up there. I'll get there eventually. Don't worry about me. Huffing and puffing. No. In Christ church, we are all in this together until we all get to the finish line. You haven't become the perfect Christian until everyone around you is the perfect Christian. So you keep doing the work. You haven't arrived yet. Paul gives us three different facets for all of us to reach. In describing Christ-like maturity, there's three facets to it. The first one is that we attain to this unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Remember that the word faith can sometimes mean our personal experience and living out of our faith. You might call that a subjective use of the word faith. So, um, so that is like, a, you know, walk by faith and not by sight. 
But there's also another sense of the word faith that is the, the thing that we have faith and trust in, the object of our faith or objective sense of our faith. And that's like when we say the Christian faith. We're meaning all the doctrines and beliefs that make up the content of our religion and our faith. Here we're talking probably about more of that second idea, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Since they're being uh, brought together, it, it's likely that, that, that Paul is talking about, let's say, a doctrinal unity or a, a knowledge unity. Not that we are to have the same exact experience of faith. And this is a, a dangerous thing. This is what churches sometimes try to churn out, is a cookie-cutter Christians, where we all have to look, act, and think the same way. And so that's what cults are, typically, is that it's not just here. We are delivering to you this body of, of doctrine, and you're going to go live that out in your individual life, and it's going to look different for you. If you're, if you're at home, it's going to look different for you. If, uh, if you're uh, retired, it's going to look different for you. If you, you know, work in a uh, in L.A., it's going to look different for you. It just, it's going to look different. There's not anything cookie-cutter about it, but what needs to be united is what we all think about who Jesus is, even if how that looks is different, versus cults are usually trying to get everyone's behavior to look and sound exactly the same. That's not our goal. Our goal is to know who Jesus is, the Son of God, and out of that deliverance of information and, and doctrine, that passing on of faith that happens in Bible studies and Sunday mornings. We all hear it. We all heard the same thing for us to go and live out our life of faith. But while uh, one of the goals then of our church is to learn about Jesus and grow in that knowledge together. That's why we have so many Bible studies and, uh, and frequently our ministries are centered around the Word of God because that has to be basic and fundamental, that we agree on who Jesus is as the Son of God, not as a, a, a being that was created and is half, you know, spiritual brothers with Satan, as the Mormons believe, not that he is some prophet or special teacher, as uh, Muslims and, and uh, some Jewish people believe. No, we are talking about Jesus who is equal with God, fully God and fully man, who came in literal flesh to literally, physically, bodily die on the behalf of sinners, thus appeasing God's righteous wrath, and then rose again to conquer sin and death and ascended to the Father, and who will come back for his people one day. That Jesus, we all proclaim, we all know it, and then how that works out in your lives, it's going to be different. And you're going to go through and experience it, and then you're going to come back on Sunday and you share with other believers, here's how that impacted and changed and helped or encouraged me or comforted me this week. And we, we can be united and rejoicing about that, but knowing that there's hopefully many different stories of how that played out. Paul says that one of the goals of being a part of a church is that help of each other personally and cooperatively to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. Yes, you could. Yes, you could just go on YouTube and listen to your favorite pastors and preachers and grow in the knowledge of Jesus on your own, apart from a group or body 
But Paul is, in a way, insinuating that you can't actually attain to this maturity of, of Christ-likeness without a body of believers to do that with. I mean, part of it is because how do you know if you're wrong if you only listen to you? That's why we have you know, scholarship. That's why we, we have peer reviews. That's why we have a, a separation of, of powers is because there's a sense, well, you might not always get it right. So you, know, you need people in your life who know you, who know what your beliefs are, to hold you accountable to it and to sometimes correct you if you're wrong. Even pastors do. So we need uh, one of the facets of reaching Christ-like maturity is this unity of knowledge and, and, and faith of who Jesus is. Secondly, we have this word maturity, which literally means full-grown man. But it's not only talking about the men in the church that say when he says that uh, we need to all attain to mature manhood, but rather remember that in Ephesians 2.15, Paul said that God has created one new man by combining Jews and Gentiles who are as opposite of, of peoples as they could be in terms of a spiritual uh, spiritual people, um, that he's made one new man. And God's intention is to see that new man that was created grow into a complete, whole, mature adult. And Paul is just continuing that analogy of the new man in Ephesians 2, and it's meant to remind us that the church is a living thing that if it is healthy, can and will grow into a mature form. I, I absolutely love my, my boys, Uriah and Ezekiel. A part of me wants to keep them at two and five forever. I mean, they're just, you know, they're mischievous, but they're very sweet and cute and funny and um, just a, a ton of fun. But if they are healthy and normal, what is going to happen? They will become men capable of taking care of themselves and others, able to take responsibility for their actions and impact the world around them. And to be fair, the same with my daughters as well, that they will, as much as I would love for them to stay, you know, 11 and almost 7 forever. I, I want them to be normal and healthy. And if that's true, they are going to be fully mature grown adults. One day, that's just what happens if things are healthy and growing. And so it is also that God's goal for the church, all the local churches and eventually the church universal, but Paul is talking to a local church here, the church in Ephesus. He's saying that the goal for every church is that they mature, that they be healthy and grow. And if that happens, they will mature and deepen in their convictions and works and exhibit perseverance and responsibility, and ownership of action, and duty. So we should expect that as well. And that's, again, something that Paul is saying doesn't happen on your own, that you cannot be uh, reach mature manhood all on your own. To a certain degree, it's true naturally, too, that my, my boys need uh, godly examples of manhood so that they can become the men that they need to be. They might not naturally just gravitate towards that but again if things go naturally and normally they'll have male figures in their life uh, lord willing myself to bring them into that image and picture of manhood well in our churches 
We need everyone to participate if we want to get to that stage of maturity. And conversely, you are not going to get to this stage of maturity isolating yourself and being off lone wolf Christian. We all must attain to this. We all must be a part of it. Third aspect of this goal of Christ-like maturity is that we are we have the target of a complete Christ-likeness. All of our growth does have an image that it's trying to be matched up to. Who is the pinnacle of maturity and godliness? What is the standard of what perfect looks like? Of course, we know it's Jesus. Again, yes, that is an individual goal for every believer. But we're talking here about the goal of Jesus' gifts to the church. He wants unity that, such that uh, all of us can say, we are like Christ now, not just I am like Christ now. And of course, no, no church, I think, can ever say that they've fully arrived. I was just thinking of uh, when we went through our study in Revelation uh, 1, 2, and 3, and you have the seven letters to the churches. Well, those are all mature churches. I mean, these, these are some of the last letters that any church receives in the New Testament, right? So they're mature. They've been around for decades. They're being pastored by godly men. But remember, almost every church had some pretty significant and severe problems, despite being mature. It's not then the case that you know, there's kind of a debate on this passage. Like, can any church on this side of heaven, or any individual Christian for that matter, get to this perfect or complete state? Now, I have had folks who um, who've come to our Bible studies and and said pretty much, "I don't sin anymore." But what they meant by that was, "I don't do like the big sins anymore." You know, I don't murder people. Um, and I don't commit adultery, and I don't lie anymore. Um, but that is such a simplistic definition of sin, as if it only amounts to, I don't do things that would get me in jail. When God says, he looks at every thought and intention of the heart. And who here can say, every thought and intention of my heart has only ever been good and noble? And honorable. I cannot. <laughs> I cannot say that. So, on the one hand, then you have to have a picture of what the perfect is, the measure that you're trying to measure up to. We have to have before us uh, Jesus Christ. We have to have before us, in a literal sense, the Gospels and that picture of Jesus. And the pictures of Jesus we see throughout the epistles and in the book of Revelation. We have to have that picture to know what we are shooting for. Regardless of whether we get there or not, we have to say this is what we are striving. And maybe some churches can say they get very, very, very close. I hope we could say we get very, very, very close to that. There are some, some Sundays I just think, man, we are right there with the, the character and heart of Jesus. We're, we're doing it. I, I get the feeling. There might be some Sundays where I feel... We need some help. <laughs> we can do a little bit better. But I think what defines us, that maturity that defines us, is 
a willingness, just like those churches in Revelation, to accept Jesus' words and conform to them. To say that we do know what's right and wrong. And when we're presented with that, we will choose the right. As we have the ability and the will to do it, we are going to serve the Lord. I think our church can say that. Now, what's important about all of this is that this is a goal, this goal of spiritual growth, spiritual unity, spiritual um, maturity is a goal that we have for each other. It's a very funny thought to think of. Like when, I know it's March already, so your New Year's resolutions are already blown. You know, <laughs> you don't even remember <laughs> what your New Year's resolution was because we're in the middle of March now. But just like, who, who sets your New Year's resolutions? You, you do, right? You, you, set them, you set them for yourself. But Paul, what he is doing is saying, here's a resolution that you are setting for each other almost. There's an expectation here of mutual accountability. It's not just that I am trying to attain to the unity of the faith. I know that we all must attain to the unity of faith. Therefore, I have a resolution to give to you. And you must be a part of the work of the ministry and the building up of the body of Christ. That you must have in your heart this goal of Christ-like maturity. And you need to understand you can't do those things on your own. We can't be consumeristic. We can't be individualistic. We must be biblicist. We must be Christ-like. We must obey the words of the scriptures here. We'll talk about it more uh, next time. But let me just plug once more. Next week, after the service, we're going to have a volunteer fair. And the goal of that is, is, not, um, is not to say, if you don't participate in a ministry, you know, go find another church. That's not it at all. That's not it at all. We have a duty, again, the pastors. As far as the Lord has given us um, ability is to equip you for the work of the ministry. And part of that is letting you know what are some of the works of ministry that you can do. All it is is presenting that to you. We're not going to force you to do anything. We're not going to say, hey, uh, I know you hate uh, working with toddlers, but could you please be in the toddler room? It's not going to be like that. It's not, it's not just shoving people in you know, round pegs into square holes or anything. It's simply for us to obey this text. We can't force you to obey this text. Um, but we can present to you opportunities to grow. So that's what next week will be about. And so I would uh, urge you to consider that. Are we having treats or anything? Anything special with that? Okay. I'll try to work something out. I'm partial to Krispy Kreme, so maybe some, maybe some Krispy Kremes will show up. Um, but if you're not a Christian today, so that's an application for you believers. <laughs> if you're not a Christian today. Again, the question of what are you here for comes up. If you're a consumerist, you know, it's I just want my life to be slightly better and better as I get old. That life, my quality of life will increase. I won't have to worry about health problems or I don't have to worry about money. You're going to die one day. And it will not matter how much money you had 
how big your house was, how many awards you were given, you will stand before a holy God and have to give an account. And if your words are going to be, well, I, I spent pretty much my whole life trying to be as comfortable and content as possible without you, God, who are the source of all contentment and comfort, then God will give you what you thought you wanted, a life without Him, which would be an eternity in and hell and condemnation. To be, I know hell, we often emphasize the, the hell fire and the brimstone and, and so on, and, and the physical pain and, and the mental anguish and suffering. Um, and, and that's true. And I don't want to, you know, of course, diminish that because the Bible doesn't diminish that. But you have to understand the true pain and torture and torment of hell is to be apart from God. Just as the true joy and comfort of heaven is to be with God, I hope that is. It's not the streets of gold. It's not, you know, uh, whatever delicious food that they have in in heaven, um, you know, this amazing cakes or pies or churros or something, and that's why you want to be there. All, all the friends and the family, that's all good. But the true joy of heaven, you realize, is God. God, the, the maker and creator of everything, being your friend, being your Lord, being your God, being there with you. So the chief torment of hell is the exact opposite, to be apart from all that which is lovely and beautiful and good. Spend your whole life trying to seek goodness in stuff. It's such folly. Because you'll do awful, horrible things in order to make yourself more comfortable and more happy. If you're not a Christian and all you are for is that individualistic, I should be able to do whatever I want. No one can tell me what to do. You're, you know, age range of this room goes from, is it 92, Inez, you're 92 this year? 93? What is it? 92. Okay, it goes from 92 to, I think our youngest is, is Ezekiel? Oh, who? Oh, Ellie and Eric's. Oh, yeah, that's like a few months. Okay, yeah. All right. Um, that is in the scheme of, uh, of this existence, even that, you know, 90 years of experience is nothing compared to the wisdom of God. To think that you have the right to say, I can do whatever I want. No one can tell me what to do. Um, you, you didn't exist a hundred years ago. None of you existed a hundred years ago. That's just such. That's got to be a humbling thought. And to think that you just showed up here, right? No will on your part. You showed up. That didn't have. No one asked you whether you wanted to exist or not. And then for you to show up and be like, I can do whatever I want. It's such a lack of humility. You didn't exist 100 years ago, and you think you could just show up and be like, you know what? I'm looking around, and I think, yeah, I can pretty much do whatever I want, and no one can tell me what to do. It's just such a lack of humility. Who do you think you are? I don't care if you live to 100 or 200. It still does not give you the right to say, 
I can do whatever makes me happy. If you're not a Christian, you show some humility. You were made by God. You did not make yourself. You owe Him something. He doesn't owe you anything. You don't. The world doesn't owe you anything either. And you don't. You are just here because of something far greater than you. If you're not a Christian here, consider that. What that means about everything you pursue and desire and want. You have to be challenged in your understanding that God is very real. He's made everything here for a purpose. Do you know what that is? If you don't, talk to me. Talk to someone who's got a Bible in their hand, and they will help you understand. They will reveal to you the God that loves you and made you and calls you into account. So consider that. Heavenly Father, I thank you again that you are gracious to us. I mean, we do, we really do all of us just show up, um, and from the get go, we're just about ourselves and crying and, and, uh, and just expecting others to feed us and cater to us. And we grow up as adults not really, um, thinking much different than we did as babies. But by the grace of God, you make us mature. We start to see the vision of, of who we are and what we're supposed to be. In Jesus, who lived not for himself, not for his good, but for the good of others and for the good of God. That's why we're here as well. That's the preciousness of life that you've given us. And so I pray, Lord, that we consider that we are here for the sake of others and for you. And give us practical ways that, that works out. You know, give us burdens on our heart of how we can serve with all the gifts and experience and talents that you've given us. And help us to do so joyfully, knowing that it is building up this glorious, beautiful structure of the body of Christ. Thank you for everyone. I know so many, almost everyone does serve already. We're, we're in a way, not um, trying to ask uh, more than what many are already giving. But um, for those who are uh, feeling maybe a burden to do more, Lord, I pray that you would help um, the, the days and weeks ahead as we consider how to build up the body of Christ at ICC. Um, that it would be um, glorifying to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.